Chapter 24 The Essential Elements of Christian Experience Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew 5.6 There are a great many things in the experience of Christians that are exceedingly interesting when traced out in their natural history. I have been amazed to notice how very commonly what is unique to Christian experience drops out of the mind, while that which is merely subordinate remains and constitutes the mind's entire conception of what Christianity is. Their way of talking of their experience leaves you very much in the dark as to its genuineness even when they intend to specifically give you the reasons of their hope. I want to first state some of the facts that belong to the life of God in the soul. 1. Hunger and thirst are states of mind and do not belong to the body. They are of two kinds, natural and spiritual. The objects on which the natural state of mind depends are food and drink. By our very constitution, these are necessary to our well-being in the present world. These appetites are natural and depend on their appropriate objects. There are also spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst, which are as truly natural as physical hunger and thirst. It is no more a figure of speech to use these terms in this case than in the other. The appetites that demand physical food and drink are facts and experiences. Everybody knows what it is to have them, and everybody knows in general what those things are that are so related to the human constitution as to meet those demands so also the spiritual appetites are not less matters of fact and experience, and they stand in a similar manner related to the objects that are adapted to the demand. 2. Sin is a fact in the natural history of the human race. That it is so must be attributed to the fall of our first parents. Yet, Whatever explanation is given of the introduction of sin into the human family, it now exists as an undeniable fact. Some attention to the matter in which sin is first developed may serve to show its relationship to what I have called the natural history of the human race. We all know it to be a fact that the natural appetites begin their development immediately after the natural birth. The first awakening to a conscious existence in this world seems to be, if not occasioned by, yet closely connected with, a physical demand for food. The repeated changes of demand and supply begin and continue while health continues, developing the strength of this class of appetites the entire time. The natural commonly make their development far in advance of the spiritual. 
Not much is said in the Bible as to the method in which sin entered our world and acquired such a relationship to the human soul, but it distinctly refers to Adam's first sin, and it is asserted to be in some way connected with that event. Facts show that sin has become in a most significant sense natural to the human race so that they all instinctively, not of necessity, but instinctively, if no special grace intervenes, begin to sin as soon as they begin to act morally, or, in other words, as soon as they become capable of moral action. It is not that people are born sinners, nor that they sin before they are born, nor that sin is born in them nor even that they are born into sin beyond their control. But still, the nature of the man, body and mind, is such, and the law of development is such, that people sin naturally, although voluntarily, consistently, and shamefully. But they all sin a free choice. The temptations to sin are developed before those intellectual and moral powers are developed, that could counteract the excessive demands of the physical senses. Observe the developments of the newborn child. Some pain or appetite awakens his consciousness of existence, and by this is created a demand for the things the child perceives himself to need. Then the little infant begins to struggle for good, for that particular good which its newly developed sensibility demands. Need, the struggling demand for supply, and the gratification form a process of development that gives such power to the sensibility that before long generates an intense selfishness, and before the conscience and reason are perceptibly developed, they have laid the foundation for spiritual death. If the Spirit of God does not inspire spiritual needs and stir up the mind to efforts in obtaining them, the mind becomes so preoccupied and its sensibilities acquire such habits of control over the will that when the idea of right and wrong is first developed, the mind remains dead to its demands. The appetites have already gained the upper hand. The mind seems to act as if it were hardly aware that it has a soul or any spiritual needs. The spiritual consciousness is at first not developed at all. The mind does not seem to know its spiritual relationship. When this knowledge first forces itself upon the mind, it finds the ground preoccupied, the habits established, and the soul too much engaged for earthly good to be called off. The tendency of this law of development is completely downward. The appetites become more and more controlling and domineering. The mind has less and less regard for God. The mind comes into a state in which spiritual truth bothers and angers it, and of course it thoroughly leans toward spiritual coldness, choosing apathy, even though aware of its danger, before the continual annoyance of unwelcome truths. This tends toward a state of dead coldness to spiritual need. 
The first symptom of change is the soul's awakening to spiritual consequences. Sometimes this is weak at first, or sometimes it may be more strongly awakened to its spiritual relationship, position, and needs. This brings on concern, desire, and a deep sense of what the soul truly needs. From this arises an influence that begins to counteract the power of physical appetite. It begins to operate as a balance and check to those long, unrestrained demands. You might notice here that in the same proportion as the spiritual consciousness is developed, the mind becomes distressed, for in this proportion the struggle becomes intense and violent. Previously, the man was dead. He was like an animal as to the unrestrained indulgence of appetite, above the mere animal in some things, but below in others. He continues without that counteracting influence that arises from the spiritual awareness. You see some people who live a careless, aimless life. They do not seem at all aware that they have a spiritual nature or any spiritual needs. When they awake to spiritual consciousness and reflection, conviction produces remorse and agony. This spiritual struggle, at whatever age it may occur, is in its general character the same that occurs in the infant when its physical awareness is first awakened. It is only natural that when the spiritual instincts are awakened, people will begin to pray and struggle under a deep sense of being wrong and guilty. At first, this may be entirely selfish, but before conversion takes place, there will be a point in which the counter-influences of the selfish against the spiritual will balance each other, and then the spiritual will gain the upper hand the physical and the selfish must relatively decline as the spiritual gains strength until victory moves to the side of the spiritual powers. How commonly you can observe that when the mind becomes convicted of sin, the attractions of the world fade away. All it can give looks small. Sinners can no longer take pleasure in worldly things as they once had done. Indeed, this is a most extraordinary and remarkable struggle. How rapid and great are the changes through which the sinner passes. Today he quenches the light of God in his soul and gropes on in darkness. Tomorrow the light may return and reveal yet greater sin. One day he relapses back to worldliness and gives up his soul to his own thoughts and pleasures. But before another day has passed, there is bitterness in this cup, and he abhors it, and from his soul cries out, This can never satisfy an immortal mind. Now he begins to try to reform outwardly, but before long he finds that this utterly fails to bring peace to his soul. He is full of trouble and anxiety for salvation, yet all his struggles so far have been entirely selfish, 
and before he is converted, he must see this to be the case. He is in a horrible pit of miry clay. The more he struggles, the deeper he sinks, and the more desperate his case becomes. Selfish efforts for spiritual relief are just like a quagmire of thick clay. Each struggle plunges the sinking man deeper in the pit. The convicted man is ready to put himself to hard labor and mighty effort. At first he works with great hope of success, for he does not at first understand why selfish efforts will not be successful. He prays, but all in a selfish spirit. By this I mean that he thinks only of himself. He has no thought of honoring or pleasing God, and he has no thought of any benefit to his fellow beings. He does not inquire whether God can bless his course of life and state of heart without disservice to the rest of his great family. In fact, he does not think of caring for the rest of that family, nor for the honor of its great father. Of course, such selfish praying brings no answer, and when he finds this to be the case, he agonizes and struggles more than ever. Now he tries to add to his works and efforts. He attends more meetings, reads his Bible more, and tries new forms of prayer. All is in vain. His heart is still selfish. What can I do, he cries out in agony. If I pray, I am selfish, and if I stop praying, this too is selfish. If I read my Bible or neglect to read it, each is likewise selfish, and what can I do? How can I help being selfish? He has no idea how to act from any other or higher motive than his own interests. It is his darkness on this very point that makes the sinner's struggle so long and so unprofitable. This is the reason why he cannot be converted at once and why he needs to sink and flounder so much longer in the quagmire of unavailing and despairing works. It is only when he at last realizes that all this avails nothing that he begins to take some proper views of his situation and of his actions. When he learns that indeed he cannot work out his own salvation by working at it in this way, he begins to consider whether he is not all wrong at heart, whether his motives of heart are not radically corrupt. Looking around and elsewhere, he begins to ask whether God may not have some claims and some rights as well as himself. Who is God and where is he? Who is Jesus Christ and what has he done? What did he die for? Is God a great king over all the earth? And should he not have due honor and reverence? Was it this great God who so loved the world as to give his Son to die for it? He begins to understand. Oh, I see I have quite neglected to think of God's rights and honor. 
Now I see how infinitely vile and wicked I have been. It is plain enough that I cannot live this way. No wonder God did not hear my selfish prayers. There was no hope in that sort of effort, for I had, as I now plainly see, no regard for God in anything I was then doing. How reasonable it is that God would ask me to cease from all my selfish efforts and to put away this selfishness itself and to surrender myself entirely and forever to do or suffer all His blessed will. It is done. And now this long-troubled soul sinks into deep peace. It settles itself down at Jesus' feet content if only Christ is honored and God's throne is made glorious. The final result, whether saved or lost, seems to give him no longer that agonizing uneasiness. The case is submitted to the great disposer in trustful humility. God will do all things well if he takes due care of his own interests and glory, there will be no complaining, nothing but deep and peaceful satisfaction. In the case of most young converts, this state of peaceful trust in God is subject to interruptions. The natural appetites have been denied, and their dominion over the will has been refused, but they are not dead. By and by they rise to assert their influence. They cry out for gratification, and sometimes they get it. Sadly, the young convert has fallen into sin. His soul is again in bondage and sorrow. Oh, how deeply he is ashamed to think that he is again given in to temptation and pierced the heart on which he loved to rest. He had promised himself he would never sin, but he has sinned, and it is good for him if he finds no heart to conceal or deny the fact. It is better to admit it all, and most freely, although it wounds his heart more than all his former sins. Observe his agony of spirit. His tears of repentance were never so bitter. He feels disappointed, and it almost seems to him that this failure must shatter all his plans and hopes of leading a Christian life. It does not work as he thought it would. He feels ashamed before God, for he says, How can God ever trust me again after such occasions of unfaithfulness? He can hardly get himself to say a word to God or to Christ he is almost sure that he has been deceived. But finally he reminds himself of the cross of Calvary and catches a faint ray of light, a beam of the light of love. He says, There may be mercy for me yet. I will at least go to Jesus and see. Again he goes, and again he falls into those arms of love and is made purposely welcome. 
the light of God shines on his soul again, and he finds himself once more an accepted son in his father's presence. But now a new form of desire is awakened. He has learned something of his own weakness and has tasted the bitterness of sin. With an agony of interest never known before, he asks, Can I ever become deeply rooted in holiness? Can I have righteousness enough to make me stand in the evil day? Ephesians 6.13 This is a new form of spiritual desire, such as our text expresses in the words, hunger and thirst after righteousness. These extended remarks are only an introduction to my general subject, and they are intended to get before your mind the true idea of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. This state of mind is not merely conviction. It is not remorse or sorrow or a struggle to obtain a hope or to get out of danger. All these feelings may have preceded this, but the hungering after righteousness is none of these. It is a longing desire to realize the idea of spiritual and moral purity. He has in some degree appreciated the purity of heaven, along with the necessity of being himself as pure as the holy ones there, in order to enjoy their joy and breathe freely in their atmosphere. This state of mind is not often expanded upon by writers, and it seems rarely to have engaged the attention of the church as its importance demands. When the mind gets a right view of the atmosphere of heaven, it sees plainly that it cannot breathe there, but must be suffocated unless its own spirit is in harmony with the purity of that world. I remember the case of a man who relapsed into sin after living a Christian life for a season. Eventually, God reclaimed his wandering child. When I next saw this man and heard him speak of his state of relapse, he suddenly turned away and burst into tears, saying, I have been living in sin, almost choked to death in its atmosphere. It seemed as if I could not breathe in it. It almost choked the breath of spiritual life from my system. Have not some of you known what this means? You could not bear the cursed atmosphere of sin. It is so much like the very smoke of the pit. After you get out of it, you say, Let me never be there again. Your soul agonizes and struggles to find some refuge against this awful relapsing into sin. You long for a pure atmosphere and a pure heart that will never hold fellowship with darkness or its works again. The young convert, like the infant child, may not at first distinctly understand its own condition and needs, but such experience, as I have been explaining, develops the idea of perfect purity, and then the soul longs for it with longings irrepressible. The now enlightened convert says, 
I must be drawn into living union with God as revealed in Jesus Christ. I cannot rest until I find God and have Him revealed to me as my everlasting refuge and strength. Some years ago, I preached a sermon for the purpose of developing the idea of the spiritual life. The minister for whom I preached said to me, I want to show you a letter written many years ago by a lady now advanced in age that details her remarkable experience on this subject. After her conversion, she found herself exceedingly weak, and she often wondered if this was all the stability and strength she could hope for from Christ in his gospel. Is this, she said, all that God can do for me? With much time and prayer, she examined her Bible. At last she found that beneath what she had ever read and examined before, there lay a class of passages that revealed the real gospel, salvation from sinning. She saw the provisions of the gospel in full relief. Then she closed herself up, determined to seek this blessing until she would find it. Her soul went forth after God, seeking communion with Him and the great blessing that she so deeply felt she needed. She had found the needed promises in God's Word, and now she held on to them, as if she could not let them go until they had all been fulfilled in her own joyful experience. She cried mightily to God. She said, if you do not give me this blessing, I can never believe you again. During this time and through his word, the Lord showed her that the provisions were already made, that they were just as full and as glorious as they needed to be or could be, and that she could receive them by faith if she would. In fact, it was plainly the case that the Spirit of the Lord was pressing the blessing upon her acceptance so that she had only to believe, to open wide her mouth that it might be filled. Psalm 81.10 She saw and obeyed. Then she became firm and strong. Christ had made her free. She was no longer in bondage. Her Lord had absolutely enlarged her soul in faith and love, and triumphantly she could exclaim, Glory be to God! Christ has made me free! The state of mind expressed by hungering and thirsting is a real hunger and thirst, and the hunger and thirst is fully satisfied with the bread and water of life. These types, if indeed they are to be regarded as types at all, are kept up fully throughout the Bible, and all true Christians can testify to the appropriateness of the language to express the idea. I have said that this state of mind implies conversion, for although the awakened sinner may have agonies and convictions, he has no clear idea of what this union with Christ is, nor does he clearly understand the need of a cleansed heart. He needs some experience of what holiness is, 
and he often also seems to need to have tasted of the exceeding bitterness of sin as felt by one who has been near the Lord before he will fully comprehend this great spiritual need of being a partaker indeed of Christ's own perfect righteousness. By righteousness here, we are not to understand something imputed, but something real. It is imparted, not imputed. Christ draws the souls of his people into such union with himself that they become partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4, or, as elsewhere expressed, partakers of his holiness, Hebrews 12.10. The troubled Christian longs for this. Having had a little taste of it, and then having tasted the bitterness of a relapse into sin, his soul is stirred to most intense struggles, to realize this blessed union with Christ. A few words should now be said on what is implied in being filled with this righteousness. Worldly people incessantly hunger and thirst after worldly good, but attainment never overtakes desire. Therefore, they are never filled. There is always a conscious desire that no obtaining of this kind of good can satisfy. It is most remarkable that worldly people can never be filled with the things they seek. Well do the scriptures say that this desire enlarges itself as hell and is never satisfied. Habakkuk 2.5 They really hunger and thirst even more according to how much more they obtain. Let it be especially noted that this being filled with righteousness is not perfection in the highest sense of this term. People often use the term perfection of that which is absolutely complete, a state that has no room for improvement and beyond which there can be no progress. There can be no such perfection among Christians in any world, earth or heaven it can pertain to no being except God. He, and He alone, is perfect beyond possibility of progress. All else except God are making progress, the wicked from bad to worse, and the righteous from good to better. Instead of making no more progress in heaven as some suppose, The law of progress is probably in a geometrical ratio. The more they have, the farther they will advance. I have often wondered whether this law that seems to prevail here, what I refer to as impulsive progression, will operate there. Here we notice that the mind from time to time gives itself to most intense exertion to make attainments in holiness. Once the attainment has been made, the mind rests for a season, as if it had taken its meal and was waiting for the natural return of its appetite before it would put forth its next great effort. Could it not be that the same law of progress is at work even in heaven? We see here the operations of this law in the usual Christian progress. 
Intense longing and desire produce great struggling and earnest prayer. At last, the special blessing desired is found, and for a time the soul seems to be filled to overflowing. It seems to be fully satisfied and to have received all that it supposed possible, and possibly even more than was ever asked or thought. The soul cries out before the Lord, I did not know there was such fullness in store for your people. How wonderful that God should grant it to someone such as myself. The soul finds itself swallowed up and lost in the great depths and riches of such a blessing. Oh, how the heart pours itself out in the one most expressive petition, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, Matthew 6.10. All prayer is swallowed up in this. And then the praise, the fullness of praise. All struggle and agony are interrupted. The soul seems to demand a rest from prayer so that it may pour out itself in one mighty tide of praise. Some suppose that people in this state will never again experience those longings after a new baptism. But in this they are mistaken. The meal they have had may last them a considerable time, maybe even longer than Elijah's meal that strengthened him for forty days. 1 Kings 19.8 But the time of comparative hunger will come around again, and they will prepare themselves for a new struggle. This is what is sometimes expressed as a baptism, an anointing, an unction, sealing of the Spirit, Ephesians 1.13, or an earnest or the promise of the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 1.22. All these terms are applicable and beautiful to signify this special work of the divine Spirit in the heart. So truly does the soul seem to live on Christ that those who experience it know how well and appropriately it is described as eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Lord Jesus. John 6, 53-57 The bread and the water of life are also promised freely to those who are thirsty. These terms may seem very mystical and meaningless to those who have had no experience but they are all plain to those who have known in their souls what they mean. If you ask why figures of speech are used at all to signify spiritual things, you have the answer in the difficulties of the human mind in regard to comprehending spiritual things. Christ's language must have seemed very mystical to his hearers yet it was the best he could use for his purpose. If any man will do his will, he will know of his doctrine. John 7.17 7, But how can a selfish, depraved, foolish, and disobedient mind expect to enter into the spiritual meaning of this language? How strangely must Christ's words have sounded to the ears of Jewish priests. God in us, John 14, 23. 
the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, John 14, 70. You shall abide in me, John 15, 7, and so forth. How could they understand these things? The living bread that came down from heaven, John 6, 51. What could this mean to them? They thought they understood about the manna from heaven, and they idolized Moses. But they did not know how to understand what this Nazarene said about giving them the true bread from heaven that would be for the life of the world. No wonder they were perplexed, having only legal ideas of religion, and not having even the most remote speculation about the idea of a living union with the Messiah for the purposes of spiritual life. What are the conditions of receiving this fullness? The soul must hunger and thirst for it. And this is the only condition specified in this passage. We know that it is very common to have promises made in the Bible, and yet not have all the conditions of the promise stated in the same connection. If we find them elsewhere, we are to regard them as definitive conditions, and they are to be understood as implied where they are not expressed. In other places, we are told that faith is a fundamental condition. People must believe for it and receive it by faith. This is as naturally necessary as receiving and eating wheat bread is for the nourishment of the body. Ordinary food must be taken into the system by our own voluntary act. We take and eat, and then the body makes use of it. In the same way, faith receives the bread of life, which is then made use of for our good. In general, it is found true that before Christians will sufficiently understand the relationship of this supply to their needs and to the means of supplying them, this hunger and thirst becomes very intense so as to overpower and cast into insignificance all their other appetites and desires. As by a general law, one master passion takes precedence over all minor ones and may sometimes entirely suspend them for a season. That is what we find in this case, when a soul intensely hungering and thirsting after righteousness almost forgets to hunger and thirst even after its common food and drink. Place before him his study books, and he cannot bring his mind to enjoy them now. Invite him to a singing concert, and he has no desire to go at this time. Ask him to attend a gathering of people, and his mind is headed in another direction. He longs to find God, and he can take little interest in any other friend at present. Offer him worldly society, and you will find that he takes the least possible interest in it. He knows that such companions will not understand what his soul so intensely craves, and of course it were vain to look for understanding there. 
it is an important condition that the mind should have a somewhat clear understanding of the thing needed and of the means of obtaining it. Effort cannot be well directed unless the subject is in some good measure understood. What is that sealing of the Spirit? What is this baptism? I must by all means see what this is before I can intelligently seek it and hope to gain it. It is true that no one can know as well before experience as he can and will know afterward. But he can learn something before, and much often much more after, the light of experience shines in upon his soul. This is no more of a mystery than it is in hungering for a good dinner and being refreshed by it after you have eaten it. If we would have this fullness, we must be sure to believe this promise and all similar promises. We must regard them as truly promises of God, all yea and amen in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1.20 and as good for our souls to rely upon as the promise of pardon to the repentant and believing. We must ask and insist upon the fulfillment of these promises to our souls. We are authorized to expect it in answer to our faith. We should first be certain that we ask in sincerity and then we should expect the blessing just as we always expect God to be faithful to His Word. Why not? Has He said and will He not do it? Has He promised and will He not follow through? Numbers 23.19 We must believe that the promise implies a full supply. Our faith must not limit the power or the grace of Christ. The Christian is not impoverished in God. Let him take care, therefore, that he does not impoverish himself by his narrow understanding of what God can do and loves to do for his hungering and thirsting children. Often there is a need of great perseverance in the search of this blessing. Because of the darkness of the mind and the smallness of its faith, the way may not be prepared for the full bestowment of this great blessing for a long time. Remarks 1. The antinomian perfectionists mistook the meaning of this and of similar passages. They supposed that Whoever believes gets so filled as to never thirst any more. The fact is, though, that the mind may rise higher and higher, making still richer attainments in holiness at each rising grade of progress. It may indeed find many resting places, just as John Bunyan gives to his pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. Here at the top of the Hill of Difficulty, they're on the delectable mountains, where he passes through scenes of great triumph, great faith, and great joy in God. After these scenes, 
Other periods of intense desire will occur for new baptisms of the Spirit and for a new ascent upon the heights of the divine life. This is to be the course of things at least as long as we remain in the flesh, and perhaps forever. It might be that the blessed spirits in heaven will never reach a point beyond which there will not be the same experience, new developments of God made to the mind, and by this means new stages of progress and growth in holiness. With what amazement will we then study these stages of progress and delight to look abroad over the new fields of knowledge successfully opened, along with the corresponding developments of mental power and of a holy character, all which stand related to these expressions of God as effects to their cause. What new and glorious views have been bursting upon us, as fast as we could bear them, for countless ages? Looking back over the past, we will say, Oh, this everlasting progress, this is indeed the blessedness of heaven. How far this surpasses our highest thought when we looked forward to heaven from the dim distance of our earthly pilgrimage. Here there is no end to the discoveries to be made or to the truths to be learned. If there was to be no more food, how could there be any more spiritual thirst and spiritual hunger? How indeed could there be more spiritual joy? Suppose that somewhere in the passage of heaven's eternal ages, we would reach a point where nothing more remains to be learned, not another thing is left to be inquired after, and not another fact remains to be investigated or truth to be known. What a blow to the joy of heaven! We are told that the angels are desiring to look into the things of salvation, 1 Peter 1.12. Oh, yes, when they saw our Messiah born, they were allowed to come so near with their joyous outbursts of praise that even humans could hear. Do you not suppose that those angels, too, are growing in grace and advancing in knowledge? No doubt they are most wonderfully, and have been ever since they came into existence. How much more they must know of God now than they did before our world was created! How much more they still have to learn from God's rule over the human race! Do you think that they have no more desires after the knowledge of God? Have they no more desire to rise to still higher conformity of heart and character to the great model of heaven? If this is how it is with angels, it is certainly not less so with their younger brethren, the holy who are redeemed from among men. You might think that you could learn all human science by studying in a great university for a few days. This would be a great mistake. You can master many sciences and still have other heights to ascend, other vast fields of knowledge to explore. 
you might have the best of human teachers and the best possible opportunities for learning. Yet still, it would be enough to fill many lifetimes to master all there is even in human science. The mind is not made to be so filled to saturation that it desires no more or can receive no more. Like the trees planted on the rivers of the waters of life that bring forth twelve manner of fruits and whose roots go deep and drink largely of those blessed waters, Revelation 22, 1 and 2, so is the mind that God has blessed with the functions of immortal progress. As our ideal becomes elevated and we see higher points to which we may arise, we will have more stirrings of desire and more intense struggles to advance. What Christian does not find, as he reads the Bible over, new and deeper truths of meaning never seen before, new truths revealed and new beauties displayed? Old Father O used to say, I am reading the Word of God. It is deep and rich, like the great heart of its author. I have read now for two hours and have only gotten over two verses. It will take me all eternity to read it through. So it was. He really found more in the Bible than other people did. He went deeper, and the deeper he went, the richer he found its precious ores of gold and silver. The psalmist says, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Psalm 119.18 Have you not been so enraptured with love to this blessed book that you wanted to hold it to your heart and become purified with its spirit? As you go down into its depths and find in each successive level of its deep thoughts new beauties and new fields of truth to explore, have you not been filled with intense desire to live long enough and have time and strength enough to see, to learn, and to enjoy it all? Like the successive landscapes as you ascend the lofty mountain side and see them spreading out in grander beauty and broader range at each stage. So, as you really study the great and rich things of God's spiritual kingdom, there is no limit to this breadth of the knowledge of God, for the fields only become broader and more delightful as you ascend. Do you not think that the soul of the person who eats and drinks and fills his soul with divine righteousness must be truly blessed? 2. I am strongly impressed with the belief that some of you need new growth in your spiritual life. You need to go deeper into the knowledge of God as revealed in the soul. You need to hunger and thirst more intensely, and by this means to be filled as you have not often been as yet. 
even though you may have tasted that the Lord is gracious, you still need to eat and drink abundantly at His table. It will not benefit you to live on those old dinners, long past and long since digested. You need a fresh meal. It is time for you to say, I must know more about being filled with righteousness. My soul yearns for this heavenly food. I must come again into this banqueting house to be feasted again with his love. Song of Solomon 2.4 3. The full soul cannot be satisfied to enjoy its rich spiritual provisions alone. If well fed himself, he will be only more concerned to see others also fed and blessed. The spirit of Christ in his heart is a spirit of love, and this can never rest except as it sees others reaching the same standard of fulfillment and enjoyment that is so delightful to itself. 4. Real Christians should be, and in general they will be, growing better and holier as they get nearer to heaven. On the other hand, how great and fearful is the contrast between an older growing Christian and an older sinner who is growing in depravity and sin. The one is advancing toward heaven, and the other toward hell. The one goes on praising and loving, laboring and suffering for God and for his generation according to the will of God but the other goes on his downward course, scolding and cursing as he goes, abhorred by men and disowned by his Maker. You have seen the dreadful contrast. You could hardly believe that two people so unlike were both raised in the same township, attended the same school, attended the same religious assembly, and heard the same gospel. Yet, see how clearly the one is saved and the other is damned? Each bears the sign in advance, the clear, unmistakable evidence of the destiny that awaits him. 5. Is it not time that each one of you who has any spiritual life should stand out before the world and put on your beautiful garments? Let all the world see that there is a power and a glory in the gospel such as human philosophy has never even approached. Show that the gospel produces purity and peace. Show that it enlarges the heart and opens the hand for the good of all humankind. Show that it conquers selfishness and transforms the soul from hate to love. Sinners, you who have earthly hunger and thirst enough, let your ears be opened to hear the glad tidings of real salvation. 
You whose hearts have never known solid peace. You who are forever desiring yet never satisfied. You who cry in your inmost souls, Oh, for position, for honor, for wealth. Look! Here is that which is better far than all you seek. Here are lasting riches and righteousness. Here are the first installments of pleasures that flow forever at God's right hand. Psalm 1611. Here is heaven offered and even urged upon you to consider and choose. Choose life before death and you will be wise for your eternal well-being. Charles G. Finney, A Brief Biography One of the men most greatly used by God during America's Second Great Awakening was Charles Grandison Finney. He was born in Warren, Connecticut on August 29, 1792 and died in Oberlin, Ohio, on August 16, 1875. Finney was a devoted evangelist, revivalist, and abolitionist. Finney, being human, was certainly not perfect, yet he was greatly used by God to lead thousands to the Savior. Those who actually read his writings learn to love and appreciate him as a man surrendered to God and a servant of Jesus Christ. Charles Finney began his career as a lawyer, but after his conversion on October 10, 1821, he left his law practice and began preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was ordained as a Presbyterian minister in 1824 and began missionary work in western New York. Finney did not usually fit in well with the old-school Presbyterians, but often won his opponents over after discussing his beliefs with them personally and explaining his beliefs from the Bible. As is still true today, many who opposed Finney at first did so based upon hearsay rather than upon actually knowing the man and his teachings. Charles Finney began preaching and seeing great results. Entire families and communities were changed by the power of God. He often opposed universalism, which was a common belief of his day. While knowing that salvation comes only through faith in Jesus, Charles Finney preached that people needed to seek God and choose to follow Jesus. Charles Finney was opposed by many, both sinners and religionists, yet he continued to preach and see spiritual fruit. He was opposed by some of the strict Presbyterians for some of his non-Presbyterian methods, such as allowing women to pray in meetings and adopting the then Methodist practice of having a bench up front in meetings where those who were concerned about their souls could come up and sit and be dealt with about their souls. Finney spent much time preaching in towns in western New York. One of his most well-known times of revival occurred in Rochester, New York, in 1830-1831.
Finney continued preaching as a traveling revivalist evangelist, and he saw thousands and thousands of lives changed by God, believers who remained faithful to God even decades later. Finney also preached about social issues, including the evils of alcohol and worldliness. He wrote much against Freemasonry, and he fiercely promoted the abolition of slavery. Finney also traveled to England twice during the 1850s to preach. He became the minister of a Presbyterian church in New York City for a little while, but then moved on to preach at the Broadway tabernacle that had been built for him. After about a year, Finney left to become the pastor of a congregational church in Oberlin, Ohio, as well as to teach theology at Oberlin College. In 1851, Charles Finney became the college's second president, serving in that role until 1866. Charles Finney was married three times. He married Lydia Root Andrews in 1824, with whom he had six children. After Lydia died in 1847, Charles married Elizabeth Ford Atkinson, who died in 1863. In 1865, he married Rebecca Allen Rawl, who outlived him, dying in 1907. All three of Finney's wives traveled with him as he preached. Some of Charles Finney's well-known writings include his Lectures on Systematic Theology, Lectures on Revivals of Religion, and his Autobiography. He has been called the father of American revivalism and is thought to have led tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is known as one of America's most influential preachers. Charles Finney did not always fit the traditional religious mold. His past as a lawyer was often seen in his sermons as he reasoned with people and made a case as to why they should follow Christ. He did not just go along with the traditional methods of the strict religionists of his day, but adapted methods to the needs of the people and spoke to them in common language. He did not fit in well with the strict Calvinists, nor with the Arminians. Some have referred to his beliefs as Arminianized Calvinism. Nevertheless, he was a man who led thousands of people from a life of sin to new life in Christ. Charles G. Finney was devoted to God, used by God, and admired and respected by many. He influenced individuals, families, communities, and the entire nation for God.